All right. We are on episode three of The Plan, which is the sermon series that we're going through this school year. And the goal here is to learn the story of the Bible. Not the stories of the Bible, but the story of the Bible. Because if you went through Sunday school or if you watched Veggie Tales, it's, it's not hard to pick up the stories of the Bible. You know, the, the person and the thing stories, the Jonah and the whale, Daniel and the lion's den, uh, you know, those kind of stories. We learn those stories. But what we don't typically learn is how those stories fit into one long story. And the reason why that's important is because David, uh, you know, David and Goliath is not my story. I'm not in there anywhere. I'm not in the story of Daniel and the lion's den. But I do have a part to play in the story of Scripture. Each one of us has a part to play in the story of Scripture. And so learning that overall plot becomes really important. And what we talked about in episode one, when we looked in Genesis chapter one, is that a plot it revolves around a person doing a thing. And the main character in the Bible is God. And in Genesis 1, God starts to do a thing. And God continues to do that thing throughout the rest of the Bible. And what we're doing as we go through this series is we are learning to track that thing, that plan, through the whole story of the Bible. And so, if you remember, we looked at Genesis 1, and what we, came, what we got out of that in terms of the thing that God is doing is this. The Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. Those are the four parts of the plan. Place, people, purpose, presence. Right? So, God made the world. He made the heavens and the earth as a place. And he, filled it with, he put people in it. And he gave those people a purpose. Their purpose is to rule the planet out on God's behalf. They, he, God rules the earth through people. And so he, the people have a purpose, and then on day seven, God's presence comes into the earth to live with them, and, and that's the ultimate arrangement. Then last week, we looked at Genesis 2 and 3, the next stage of the story, where we saw God again follow this process, where he built a specific place, the Garden of Eden. He put two specific people in it, Adam and Eve, and he gave them a specific job, not just to generally rule the earth, but to tend that garden and to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And unfortunately, last week, we discovered the weak link in the plan, which is us. Because Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God, to make their own decisions about right and wrong, and to start ruling on their own behalf instead of God's. And what we learned last week is that when, that, when one part of the plan is disrupted, the whole thing is disrupted. If God were to have let Adam and Eve stay in his plan in, under those terms, their rebellion would have corrupted everything. And so God exiled them from the garden. And that's where we left off the story last week. This week, we're going to carry on to the next kind of stage in the story. One of the things you'll find is that when we do the plan, we don't necessarily do all the Sunday school stories. In fact, sometimes we do the parts in between the Sunday school stories. So we are not going to do Cain and Abel. We're also not really going to do the flood. Today, we're going to focus on the story between Cain and Abel and the flood, because that's when the real movement in the plot happens. That's when we see it, things really change. And so we're going to be picking up the story, actually, as God confronts Cain about murdering his brother. And we're going to carry it on from there. So what we're, we're going to follow the same pattern as last week. I'm going to read you the introduction to the story, and I want you to try out this, this, these coordinates that we're doing. So you'll notice you've got the cross on your bulletin, on your sermon notes, and there's four er that divides it into four areas. And as I read this, I want you to jot down who is the, the people, who is the story about, 
You're going to write down where is their home. Now, be careful here. Their home is not necessarily where they're living. Their home is where they're supposed to be living. There's a big theme in the Bible is exile, and when you're in exile, you're not currently in your home. Okay? And then, presence. How can they meet with God? And finally, purpose. What did God tell them to do? And the idea is that once you've got these four elements straight in a story, then you can continue to read the story, and you can see how the plot, how what the human beings do fits in or jeopardizes that arrangement. And um, one of the cues that you get to uh, start using this system is any time God gives his people instructions, then that puts this into effect, because now we have to ask the question, what are they, how do they respond to those instructions? What do they do when God tells them what to do? And then, how does God respond to them and what they've done? So, I'm going to read you the story of Cain picking up. So, Cain and Abel were the first sons of Adam and Eve, and uh, they had a bit of a rivalry going, and Cain decides to murder his brother Abel, and it's the first murder, and God confronts him, and we're picking it up when God confronts Cain about murdering his brother. The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Now, this is the end of the story of Cain and Abel. But we're not doing the story of Cain and Abel. Actually, if you'd like to hear about the story of Cain and Abel, that's what we covered in the latest episode of our new podcast, the Fully Grown Podcast. So Pastor Jack and Pastor Rachel and I talked about the story of Cain and Abel because you can do the plan with that story. So feel free to check it out on the website or wherever you, if you use iTunes or that kind of thing, you can listen to it. But this is also, because God gives uh, uh, Cain a set of instructions, it starts us into a new cycle of the plan. So let's look at those four elements. Let's get our coordinates from this story. Who is the story about? Cain. Now, I'm going to add something that you wouldn't know yet until you read the rest of it. It's about Cain, and then it's also going to be about his family. We're going to trace the story of Cain through his descendants. We can tell from here that the story is about Cain. Where is their home? Where's Cain's home? Did I hear somebody say Eden? Yeah, his home is the Garden of Eden. Now, he's not there, but Adam and Eve, they were made for the Garden. And then they were sent into exile. And then their children were born into exile. But where Cain and, and Abel and, and their, what they're, where they're supposed to be, where they're designed to be, is in the garden. And now they're, they're living outside of it. So they're living in this state of exile. Okay. Now let's talk about presence. Where can they meet with God? If they could meet with God, where would they, be, where would they have to meet Him? I think I heard, did somebody say in the garden? In the garden. And you can tell because... God tells Cain that he's going to have to wander, which means, so, there was the garden, and then Adam and Eve got exiled from the garden, and so they went out away from the garden. But now Cain is being exiled from them, which means he's going even farther from the garden, and he describes that exile as going away from the presence of God. 
Did you catch that? He said he was being sent away from the presence of God. Well, that's because the presence of God, while God is present everywhere, he is especially present in the garden. That's what the garden was meant to be. It's the garden of the Lord. So when he's sent away from his family, he's also being sent further away from God. And that's actually the part that he, he really highlights. He doesn't say, you're sending me away from my parents, which God is. He says, you're sending me away from your presence. So clearly, even Cain, after the first murder, still understands that human beings are designed to live in the presence of God. And he still yearns for the presence of God. The last thing is, what does God tell Cain to do? Did you catch this? Wander the earth. Now, this is partially a consequence of murder. You tend not to be welcome at home after you murder someone. Like, like, you tend not to be welcome in the home of the person you murdered. Especially in an ancient culture where they would expect a family to try and murder you back. It gets complicated when you're in the same family. But that was the idea. That's why Cain is so afraid of getting murdered if he, if he meets someone. It's because in, in ancient culture, if you murder someone, you're supposed to get murdered back. That's what families do. There's this whole system of cities you can hide in in ancient Israel so that people can't murder you back. Right? Uh, so, part of this is a consequence of when you, murder, when you murder someone, it tends to break down social connections and you have to go on the run. But Cain also, like, this is actually something that Cain clues us in, that God is doing something to him. He says, you are sending me away. What God is doing, in this case, he actually does curse Cain. And the curse is that Cain's not going to be able to farm anymore. The earth is not going to respond to him anymore. And so he's not going to be able to be a farmer. He's going to have to wander. So God is actually sending him out to wander. Now, Cain has a problem with this arrangement, which is it's a little bit scary. Now, being a wanderer is scary on its own because it's not, it's very, it makes you very vulnerable. right? You don't have a home unless you carry it with you. You don't have fields. You don't have a dependable source of food. You don't have a great way to protect yourself from the elements or from other people. And so Cain is immediately afraid of wandering, but especially because he killed someone. And now he's afraid of being killed back. And so God does something that has been badly misinterpreted in history. God puts a mark on Cain. And we've interpreted, unfortunately, we've sometimes interpreted that mark as a curse. And also, at times, it's been interpreted as a skin color. So the conclusion being that the particular skin colors are a curse and it's been used for horrible things in history. Neither of those are even close to true. Because the mark is actually a mark of protection. The mark is not a sign that Cain is cursed. The mark is a sign that if you kill, if you kill Cain, God's going to take vengeance out on you seven times over. So the, the mark is a mark of protection. And so what we find is God tells him to wander, but there's another thing that Cain's going to have to do in order to wander is he's going to have to trust in God's protection. Yesterday we went to the lake and James wanted to jump off the dock. But in order to jump off the dock, he had to trust me that I was going to catch him and not let his head go underwater. I mean, we weren't even deep enough for his head to go underwater, but he made sure that I told him I was going to keep his hair from getting wet. I think he really meant he didn't want water up his nose. But he said, I don't want my hair to get wet. In order to jump off the dock, he had to trust me. Even though technically all he had to do was jump, he had to trust me. For Cain, it's the same thing. If he's going to go out and wander and expose himself to all these vulnerabilities, he's going to have to trust that God is actually going to protect him. So, now we ask the question, now that we've gotten those coordinates, we go into the next stage of the story, and we look at how Cain lives out the instructions he's been given, and that will give us a clue to what's going on in the plot of the story.
So Cain has been sent out to wander, and here's what happens. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. Building a city. So it's safe to, did you know? Did you know that the first city in the Bible was built by the first murderer? Did you, did you know that? And specifically after he was told not to settle down but to wander? Did you know that? I remember being in seminary when I found that out, and you very surprised by it. The question is, and, and when you approach it, comparing what God's told them to do to what they actually did, it reveals this tension going on. The king isn't actually doing what he was told. He built a city. He settled down. The exact opposite of wandering. Now, why did he do this? Well, he, it seems pretty clear from the conversation they just had, Cain's afraid. And Cain wants to be able to trust his own safety. And evidently, Cain does not trust the mark that God gave him. He doesn't trust the protection that God offered him. So instead of wandering, he's going to build a city. A city means that maybe he can learn some trade other than farming and maybe trade with a farmer. And then he'll have a steady source of food. It means he can live in a house. It means they can build a wall. They can protect themselves. And they can, they can uh, ha- you know, have a group of people who can defend themselves better than one person on the run can do. What's happening is he is trusting in human power rather than in God's power, which is a trend that we will see throughout the Old Testament. It is a, a common critique that the Old Testament makes of people who are trusting in their own power or especially in political power instead of trusting in God. The Israelites are going to do the same thing when they start making alliances with Egypt and with Babylon and trusting in these big empires to protect them rather than God. And that all starts with this moment when Cain makes a decision that instead of wandering, he built a city to protect himself. Because he doesn't trust God to protect him. He wants to protect himself. Now, this may seem like a small deal, especially considering that he's already murdered someone. Murdering someone seems like the big deal. And it is. But I would argue what we see from the text is that this has bigger consequences than the murder. Because God is still working with Cain at this point, and God gives Cain a way forward by wandering. Cain instead settles down and builds a city to protect himself from getting killed. And this is something that we do all the time. Not build cities to keep ourselves from getting killed, but trusting in our own power instead of trusting in God. Right? Sometimes we talk about it's, it's difficult to figure out what God wants us to do, and sometimes it is. But a lot of times it's really just because we don't want to do what we know God has told us to do. Right? A, lot of time, a lot of the instructions God has given us are pretty simple. What do I do when someone threatens me or when someone hits me? Do I hit them back? Do I turn the other cheek? But the problem with turning the other cheek is you have to trust that God is going to take care of you so that turning the other cheek will still somehow be productive for the kingdom, right? That it's the right path forward. It's not just letting evil win. You have to trust God that he is going to be take control of the situation and make good out of it. If you don't trust God to do that, then you're not going to turn the other cheek because that just gets you hit twice. Instead, you're going to hit back. And as Christians, we do this kind of thing all the time. We are tempted in this way all the time. We will make short-term decisions to trust in our own power and do things other than the way God has told us to do them. 
And I, I would argue that we do this in our, the biggest temptation for us in our culture is we do this when we try to keep control of American culture. In the past several decades, I've seen Christians, uh, and, and been a part of this, Christians frequently uh, doing things outside, uh, different than the way God tells us to do them, treating our enemies other than the way God treat, tells us to treat them in this desperate grab to control our culture. And we've seen this in the past, and, and the reason, one of the reasons why we're tempted to do this is because it seems to pay off. After all, it works for Cain, right? As far as we know, Cain didn't get murdered. But you can only say that Cain got away with it if you have a very, very narrow view of the consequences of his actions. And if you are just a, a completely 100% self-centered. It's the only way you can really think that Cain got away with it. Because, as we continue the story, we find out that there were consequences beyond Cain's lifetime for what he did. Let's read the rest of this, this section of the story. To Enoch was born Irad, to Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael, Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Naima. So, this is just a family tree, which is often some of the most boring reading in the Bible, right? This one's mercifully short, but, but as you watch, you'll see a couple of things happening. One is you'll see the family growing. Two, you'll see civilization developing, right? They develop agriculture. They start to grow crops. They develop culture, where they have music. They develop technology. So you see this civilization developing in this, in this city and in this, in this um, people. But you also see the first sign of, of disruption is the fact that you also have the first bigamist, the first person to take two wives, which is you know, outside of what, what was established in Genesis 2, that marriage is supposed to be a man and a woman forming one flesh. And that math doesn't work when you introduce a third person. And so uh, you see... Somebody, you see that starting to break down. God's design starting to break down. And then, the real warning sign is this little poem that happens at the end of this family tree. And it's, it's a really dense poem, and it's really interesting if you know how Hebrew poetry works. Let me show you. It says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zila, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. This poem is very telling. It, it tells us a lot about what's happened in this civilization. Um, so Hebrew poetry works in pairs of lines most of the time. And there's, you compare the pairs of lines to get the meaning. So the first two lines of the poem are, Ada and Zila listen to me, wise of Lamech hear my words. Now those are basically saying the same thing. So they're just emphasizing, you know, really emphasizing the beginning of the poem. Like, here's who he's talking to, and he, want, he really wants them to listen. Then he says this, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. Those are the two lines. I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. This doesn't quite come across in English as well as it does in Hebrew. But what's happening is, he says, I killed a man, like a full-grown man, for wounding me badly. But I also killed a boy for injuring me slightly. 
you know, he's, he's the, and you're supposed to compare the two lines. It sets up a trajectory. He says, yeah, yeah, a guy, a grown man wounded me badly, so I killed him. Which is not exactly, an, I mean, it's not a surprising response. It may not be the right one, but it's not surprising. And he says, ah, but, but then a little, like a kid gave me a paper cut and I killed him too. Because that's how I defend myself. That's how I protect, that's my vengeance. That's my power. If you cross me even a little bit, you are going to get it. And then the ultimate brag is he says, uh, if Cain is avenged seven times, which remember God said he would avenge Cain seven times, if God avenges Cain seven times, I avenge myself 77 times. You see the bragging that's going on there? That he protects himself 11 times better than God promised to protect Cain. And it's all based on his power and his violence. It's his revenge. So what we're supposed to see in Lamech is it's like a pond, like a ripples in a pond where Cain made this decision and it ripples out in this civilization until you've got Lamech who is Cain on steroids. Right? And this is the trajectory that Cain's civilization is on. So you can say Cain personally got away with it. But there have been echoes and reverberations of what he did and it founded a whole civilization that followed that pathway. Until eventually, as we get to the end of this section, it says in Genesis 6, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. This is a trajectory that that civilization was put on towards complete and total corruption. So while Cain made this seemingly small decision to build a city instead of wander, Cain's city developed into a violent, evil civilization. So violent and so evil that God had to respond. And that's the pattern that we look at in the plan is we, we get our bearings, the different, the, we get our coordinates for the plan, and then we look at what do the human beings do? Because they, they usually make mistakes, and they're usually the same kind of mistakes we make. And then we look at how God responds to them because we have a relationship with the same God. And so it's important for us to see how does God respond in these situations. And what we get is this dense paragraph in chapter 6 before the official story of the flood begins. I think it begins right after in like verse 7. But in verse 6, verse, um, not verse 7, anyway, the next paragraph, um, but this dense paragraph in verse 6, starting with the verse I just read, tells us how God responds. And there's a lot in there. So let's, let's read the passage, and I want to point out four things that God does. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings in the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's how this section of the story ends, and a new section starts in the next verse. And in this section, we see four things that God does. The first thing is it starts with saying that God saw. 
If you remember from last week, we talked about how that's important phrasing, because in Genesis 1, God saw that his creation was good. And that's not just God making an observation. When God observes the quality of something, that is an objective, that's not like a favorite color. Like if God had a favorite color, that would be the best color, right? It's not an opinion, like it is the best color. Um, and when God says, this thing, I see that this thing is good, it is good. And so God sees creation, sees it's good. At the end, he says it's very good. Now, in chapter 6, verse 5, he looks and he sees that human, the human race is completely evil. He is observing that the human race has become completely corrupted. And this causes him to do something that the NIV translates as regret. Uh, the word there is difficult. People argue a lot about what that word means when it's applied to God. When it applies to human beings, it means repent. It's the exact same word for repent in Hebrew. But we, you know, that we associate that with turning away from sin, which doesn't apply to God. And so sometimes it's translated as relent. Here it's translated as regret. But what it really ultimately means is changing course. God was headed one direction, and he turned and changed to the other direction. So what this is actually telling us, it's not necessarily like there was some unforeseen thing that God didn't know was happening, and now he regrets it. But what it's saying is God was treating them a certain way. And now he has seen that they've reached a level of corruption where his policy needs to change. He's going to deal with them differently. Just like when with Jonah, when the people, uh, when the people repent, it says God relents and treats them differently. He changes course because they've repented. Here, God changes course because of he sees they are totally corrupted. They, their evil has reached critical mass. So God saw that humanity had become completely evil, and he changed his policy toward them. Now, you probably know what's coming, a whole lot of water. And when we read about stories like this, we often assume something about God that is not always there. How do you imagine, what emotion do you imagine drives God to send a flood to wipe out human beings and animals? How do we picture God emotionally in that moment? angry, right? It's the wrath of God. The problem is, the Bible does not declare, describe God to be angry anywhere in the book of Genesis. In fact, the first time he's described as angry is when, no, or when Moses keeps arguing and trying to get out of going to Pharaoh. It's the first time he gets angry. In this passage, it says he was, there was sorrow in his heart. Interesting thing here, that word for sorrow is the exact same word we talked about last week for the pain that Eve would feel in bringing children into the world. That mental anguish, the same word used for what God feels. Except here, it's got an intensifier. He feels it in his heart. What's happening here, God's response to the destruction that human beings are creating is, is not fury, it's not anger and hatred, it's pain. It is deep pain and sorrow. If we're going to take this story and what it says about itself, it's telling us that what, how God acts here, his emotional state is actually pain. He is hurt. He is upset. He is, he is grieving because of what human beings have become and what they've done to the world around them. And so it says in this passage that God decided to send a flood. But the words that it's using are a little bit of a... a I don't know if you call it a pun. There's wordplay going on. And it helps us to understand one of the things that we struggle with in the flood story is it seems like a, a pretty extreme punishment. Right? God punishes people in other ways that aren't quite such total devastation. But this, this flood seems pretty extreme. 
But that's because it's not a punishment. See, part of the reason why we struggle with it being a punishment is because it wipes everybody out. We had a hard time believing that everyone in that civilization was equally guilty, right? Like the children were guilty. Or he's very specific, he's going to wipe out the animals too. The animals don't seem to be guilty, right? So why does he send a flood? Well, the word that's used is God is going to wipe them off the earth. You could also translate it as wash. Because what's happening here is not that God is punishing people. If he was punishing people, he tends to be more specific when he does that. What he's doing is he's washing the earth clean. God decided to wash the infection of their rebellion from the face of the earth. Because remember, what we've been learning about the plan is God's design is for human beings to to rule over the world on his behalf. And he honors the decisions that we make. That means that we have the genuine ability to create good or evil in this world, to create, to build things up or to destroy them. And that means that what we do really does affect the world around us. That means that we infect the world around us. And so what God is doing is not simply punishing wrongdoers, but humanity's corruption has reached such critical mass that all of the whole, all creation is infected. And so this is actually more like a surgical intervention. He is washing it clean of all the infections. Because not only are the worst people infected, but all of the people are infected. And even the, create, the, the created order they have around them is infected. It all needs to be washed away. It needs to start as close to scratch as possible. So we shouldn't read this as a punishment or as God getting angry and, and zapping people because he's so angry at the things they've done. This is God, out of, out of sorrow for their level of corruption, what they're doing to the world, washing the slate clean, shaking the etch-a-sketch. Right? He's, he's getting rid of this corruption. But he doesn't completely wipe humanity away. He doesn't completely wipe the animals away either. Because it says at the end, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Remember when we talked about grace over the summer, grace is, um, is generosity. God is generous to Noah. Now, we find out as you start to read the story of Noah in verse 9 that Noah was considered righteous. So that's probably why God chose Noah. But we should not think that Noah being righteous means that he was entitled to not being caught up in the flood. The narrative will also make clear later, especially in chapter 9, that Noah is infected too. They're all infected. But God shows mercy to Noah because God has made a promise. God has no plan Bs. He has one plan, and that plan was for humanity to rule over creation in his behalf. He's not going to completely get rid of humanity because he made that promise. And so he shows grace to Noah and his family and members of, of each of the species, and he preserves them. And in preserving them, he also preserves his plan. Because what it means is that coming out of the other end of the flood, there will still there will be a new place, but there will still be people to live out their purpose with the hope of being in God's presence. So God, the last thing we see in here is that God showed grace to Noah, He showed generosity to Noah, and opened a way for His plan to continue. Because as grieved as God was, and as complete as human corruption was, God is not willing to let human corruption win. That means that human corruption needs to be dealt with, but that God will always work to preserve human beings in His plan. Now, as we read this story, 
again, we're reading this as part of our story. And so we want to learn from this story what it means for us to live in, in relationship with the same God and with the same human weaknesses. So here's the, the moral that I want to draw out of this. First off, when human beings go our own way, we upset God's design and disrupt the world around us. Always. We never actually get away with it. Now, you may think you get away with it. Cain may have thought he got away with it if the only thing Cain cared about was himself and the number of years that he lived and the ways he died. Then he got away with it. If he cared anything about his family, the civilization that he was starting, if he cared anything beyond himself, he would know he did not get away with it. And no one really does. We may think that we get away with it when we decide to do things our own way instead of God's, when we decide to take things into our own hands, when we decide to use human power, human violence, human force, and weaknesses to, to try and get what we want. But it, we never really get away with it. Sometimes the consequences for you are just delayed. Sometimes they're pushed onto the people close to you. Sometimes your family experiences them, your children, your coworkers, your neighbors, the people you cut off in traffic. The, the person you talk to at the bank. But we all experience it. There are always consequences. This is one of the things that, that uh, we, I talked earlier about how Christians often fall into this when we're trying desperately to hold, on to, hold control of our culture. And so in the short term, we will do things that, that help us win a short-term battle. Maybe it helps us for this election cycle or for this office or for this issue. But then it always comes back to get us. I would argue that the perception of the church in America today is defined most by the experiences people have had of the church in, pre in previous decades. And even if we won battles in the past, we suffer the consequences now if we win them in an ungodly way. I'm also convinced, looking into the future, that an entire generation of Americans have defined their understanding of the church by the way we handled 2020. For better or worse. The way we handled last year will have set in stone for many people in America their opinion of the church and of Christians. There are consequences for what we do. We don't get away with departing from God's plan. That's why it's God's plan. God is not just super, you know, super, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess he's not just, it's not that he just cares about you doing things exactly his way every step of the way. It's that the way he has set forth is the right way. He leaves open to us the options that build things up, and anything else outside of that plan is what destroys. And so we need to remember as Christians, there are always consequences when we depart from God's plan. For somebody, at some time. The second thing that we need to remember is that, the, and we learn from the story, is the only way to preserve God's plan is to deal with our rebellion and remove the infection we've created. We talked about this a little bit last week. One of the things that we as humans continually want is we want to say, ah, oh, God doesn't care. Everybody gets in. We're generally good people. We're all going to get in. We're all going to be part of his, his eternity. And, and, you know, God, and, and we, we look at it that way. And we don't actually want to have to deal with the things that we've done. But the problem is that if God puts us into his good creation and we disrupt his good creation, it's not good creation anymore, right? And so the, the main thing, this is actually the thing that God needs to do to restore his good creation at the end of the world, is to deal with human corruption. We are the only obstacle. So that's what judgment is about. It's about dealing with our infection. The only way we can have good creation, the only way we can have the new creation, is when what we have done 
is removed from it. If God lets me go into his new creation and I'm unchanged and I go along going my own way, I'm going to ruin everything. Now, at this stage in the story, if I just stay in Genesis, this seems like a really depressing place to end the story, right? But I'm not going to make you wait until the spring to talk about Jesus. Because that's not, that's not the, the right way to handle this. Because there is hope. Because we are not in the same situation as the generation of Noah. And as I was reflecting on this and looking for mentions of Noah and the flood in the New Testament, I found a passage that I've read before that I read in a different way now. And I think I understand a little bit better. Peter talks about the flood. And he talks about how um, the God preserved eight people in the ark through a flood. And then he says... This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. The interesting thing to me about this passage is he's talking about eight people saved from the flood in an ark. What part of that story should be the metaphor for Jesus and for salvation? You think the ark, right? But he doesn't say the ark. He says the water. And I don't think that's just because he's trying to make a connection to baptism and there's no boats in baptism. But he's actually tracking with what we just said about the significance of the flood is that the flood was a washing of the earth. It was a way of washing the earth clean of infection. At that point, the way God dealt with human infection was to remove the human beings that were absolutely committed to it. But in the gospel, what's opened up to us through Jesus Christ is the opportunity for us as individuals to be clean. Instead of the world, because the world has to be washed of my sin and my corruption. And what Jesus opens the door for is for that to be removed by removing it from me. Instead of removing me with it. Instead of washing the earth, I am washed. Instead of washing the earth clean of us, God washes us clean of sin through Jesus Christ. This is what the gospel promises us. This is the good news. This is why we have hope in the New Testament that this plan of God can actually be accomplished without getting rid of every single one of us. Because Jesus opens the door for us to be changed, for us to be redeemed, for us to be washed clean, so that I can actually be part of God's good creation. There can be a place for me in the end of time when, when God restores everything, I can be a part of that without falling right back into the same corruption. Now it is a long journey to get there. And God works on us every day and it takes all the way to glory. But that is what the gospel promises us is to be washed clean through the death of Jesus and through his resurrection. We have the power to actually become the people we were made to be and to get out of the hopelessness of, of this pattern of Cain and Lamech and Adam and Eve, and everybody else. That's the hope that we have. So as we close, I'm going to ask you uh, to consider taking a next step in response to this story. Because if you haven't given your life to Jesus, today is the best day to do that. And that's the most important, first, uh, that's the most important next step to take. If you haven't given your life to Jesus and committed yourself to being remade, to being uh, restored and washed clean. Today is the best day to do that. Give your life to Him. Commit to being part of His kingdom and to turning away from the corruption and the infection that we create in this world. 
Another next step you can take if you, uh, is you can come to one of our Connect classes if you'd like to know more about what it means to be a part of this church. The first Sunday of every month we have a Connect class. Uh, so October 5th from 1230 to 2, you can come. We'll feed you. We'll talk about who the church is, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. You can sign up for that by um, on your Connect card. You can also sign up for a small group. You can let us know that you'd like to be part of a small group, which is a way for you to get plugged in with other Christians and to walk this journey together, meeting together, praying together, studying together um, throughout the week. Finally, you can join a service team. Giving back and serving is one of the most important things that God gives us to do. It's part of ruling on His behalf. And you can join one of our teams that serve regularly. You could also sign up to help out with family nights or with the trunk or treat with that sheet that we have in your bulletin. That would be a good way to get started on on giving back. We encourage you to consider any of those decisions as we sing this final song. And if you want to give your life to Christ, we encourage you to come forward during this song. So please stand and sing with us.